This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Hello, this is Christine, and I live in Traverse City, Michigan. And I'm calling in response to a question posed at the end of one of your podcasts asking, how does the news make you feel? And, boy, this question really struck a chord. Um, The news makes me feel paralyzed. There's so much going on that I would like to do something about, get involved, but I don't know how. Well, Christine, you've come to the right place. This is How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. This episode today is very close to my heart. About five or six years ago, I noticed that when I was doing my normal news consumption diet every morning, reading a bunch of news before I even started the day, I felt depleted afterwards. I felt demoralized. I had trouble getting things done. So then I started moving it to the afternoon and then evening after dark, like a vampire and thinking maybe this is the way to read the news. For a long time, I thought the problem was me. Somehow I'd gotten soft. More and more of my journalist friends started mentioning that they too were having trouble consuming the news. And we thought it was just that, you know, the news was bad. Lots of terrible things were happening in the world. But slowly, I've started to ask myself a bigger question, which is, in addition to all those things, is it also possible that the way we frame and deliver the news and decide what the news is, is part of the problem? What if we could redesign the news based on everything we now know about human psychology and what we need to make decisions in the modern world? What would that look like? To figure it out, we brought on two very smart people who are trying in different ways to redesign the news for human consumption. Nicole, why don't you kick us off? So my name is Nicole Lewis. I'm senior editor of Jurisprudence at Slate, and we cover the Supreme Court, among many other things. Uh, Previously, I was an investigative reporter at the Marshall Project. Nicole's been covering a beat for years that I think it's fair to say is one of the most dispiriting, criminal justice. So for her, it's urgent to try to figure out how to do this better. Our next guest is a friend and colleague of mine who spent years trying to reform journalism in all kinds of creative ways and is getting real traction. My name is David Bornstein. I'm a co-founder and CEO of the Solutions Journalism Network. And previously, I wrote a column at the New York Times called Fixes, which looked at uh, solutions to social problems. So today we're going to talk about how the news got so depressing and what we on the inside could do differently. This is actually the first of two episodes we're going to do on this really important topic. Next week, we'll talk about what you can do right now to stay informed, but still get up in the morning. Stay with us. 
This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast, or find it wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. I recently wrote a full confession about my broken relationship with the news for the Washington Post. At the time, I knew I wasn't alone. The Reuters Institute had just published a survey showing that four out of 10 Americans say they sometimes or often actively avoid the news. That's a higher rate than 30 other countries. And it's been going up and up since before Trump and before the pandemic. Still, I wasn't prepared for the response I got. I heard from thousands of people from all over the world who were struggling with the same thing. So we decided to ask you, our how-to listeners, to tell us what you thought. What's wrong with the news and how would you like it to be better? We got a ton of powerful voicemails. Hi, this is Denise O'Grady. I live in Bayhead, New Jersey, and uh, the news makes me feel pretty awful these days. Um, I know that Fox News is straight up propaganda, but CNN to me is, while it's not propaganda and some elements of truth, it feels completely designed to maximize outrage. So I avoid any major news site, but those two in particular. Hi, my name is Carolyn. I'm calling from Connecticut. The news makes me feel despondent and worried about our future as a society and frustrated. And I wish that the news made me feel informed and aware and forward moving. Hi, this is Anne calling from Charlottesville, Virginia. What I would love to hear from the news is something interesting, something novel, something new that people are doing to attack the problems of the day in a different way, and I'm just not hearing it. What sticks out to either of you there (laughs) in listening to those voicemails? First thought is how extremely relatable (laughs) what they're describing is, right? You know, 
I lead a section in which most of the news coming out of it is is just it's bad. It's concerning. It's panic inducing. Right? Mm. It's charting the sort of systemic collapse or contraction of our democracy. And we're watching and writing about it in real time. So all of the emotion words that they use, despondent, worried, frustrated, you know, designed to maximize outrage, panic, hopeless, I I can absolutely relate. It's overwhelming to take that in, to know that something out there is happening and we're just kind of here in in our offices behind our screens, writing about it to the best of our ability and with a varied tone and attempting to be, you know, as humorous or as light as possible. But the the crisis is is dire. It's just that serious. And so I often leave feeling, wow, you know, what are we going to do? Right. That my own sense of um, fear and frustration kind of sets in at the end of the day. And it takes a, a ton of work and energy and effort to, to dig myself out and keep going. It's really hitting people, I think, in, in an emotional place, in a place where it sounds like there's just some broader concern for their own safety and longevity here. Mm. Yeah, I, I was so struck by the emotion in their voices, right? You could really hear that emotion just under the surface. And it, and it sounds like, Nicole, you're pointing out that in addition to the ways in which the news is framed, which some of the listeners talked about, which we'll talk more about, you're also pointing out, which is very important, right, that a lot of the news is really dire, right? And it's just Absolutely. the content is is urgent and disturbing. And so that's kind of real life in some ways. Um, And that's part of what you, it sounds like, are grappling with each day. Absolutely, because we can't reframe everything in a way that makes it palatable, right? I can't, I can't do that. I can't out of all the lemons. Too many lemons. I can't. (laughs) There's just no way, you know, you think about the question that in coming into this conversation, I started sitting with was, well, what else might we need to do in order, in order to have some emotional space in our own lives Mm. to face this crisis. Mm. Um, Because in my mind, maybe this is getting too far afield, but I worry that the worse things get, the more people are going to want to tune out. Mm -hmm. And then that makes space for things to get even Mm -hmm. worse, right? So (laughs) this spiral that I I don't, you You know. Nailed it. Yes, that is the spiral. Yeah. Yeah, David, what do you think? I mean, I totally agree with that. I think that the it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because the news does overwhelm people. The emotional, the feeling that I had when I was listening to the comments, it kind of reminded me of New York City right at the beginning of COVID mm-hmm. when literally there were ambulance sirens like every five minutes. Mm-hmm. And normally in New York City, you hear ambulances now and then, which is kind of like the old version of the news where you would sit down at dinner and there'd mm-hmm. be 30 minutes of news and then you know, you'd go on to the rest of your day. But during that period, literally, it was nonstop ambulances. You know, after a while, you'd feel it in your body. It would, you'd, like, you'd be bracing for it all the time. Um, you know, thankfully, that stopped. But I feel like that's the experience that people have with the news. It's 24-7. If you wanted to design, you know, experiments to make rats go crazy, you do that kind of stuff to them. Turning it now to a Fox News alert, Biden's border crisis has been upgraded to a catastrophe. This is CNN Breaking News. Donald Trump's life gets worse every day. There's just nothing in the human nervous system that was designed for that much information that's Mm -hmm. that threatening and makes you feel that much out of control on a regular basis. When we consume the fire hose of news, we're left gasping for air. 
So it's no wonder the people just turn the fire hose off. But here's the thing, we still need water. We need to be informed. So is there another way to do this? Is there a sprinkler setting on the fire hose? Maybe a mist, could I get a mist? Hi, my name is Vanessa and I'm from Vancouver, Canada. These days, um, I would say the news makes me feel overwhelmed, anxious, and sad. But I actually made a choice to turn off the notifications on all of the news apps on my phone like a year ago. And my mental and emotional health is way better. Like, I noticed a huge difference. The whole understanding of news has to be reinformed by these behavioral insights that have come from people like Daniel Kahneman, how we process information, how we make sense of it, how it affects our emotions, how we react, the whole predictably irrational nature uh, that we are. I think journalists still kind of have this notion that we're all like sort of Mr. Spock in Star Trek, that, you know, just the facts and, and we can sort of deal with the world in that way. And it's just completely out of touch with the way people really work. Yeah, I remember you once said to me, David, I've never forgotten it. You said that, um, you know, the way that economics has changed to account for human behavior, journalism has yet to really go through that change. I mean, I think in some ways journalists do understand certain human emotions, right? Like fear, outrage, right? But then in other ways, there's a lot of blind spots, right? Um, and and part of that isn't, you know, is because we didn't know these things. You know, we didn't really know the effect of hopelessness on human health until more recently. And we didn't know how humans need a sense of agency in order to really work on any problem at all. Um, so, so some of this is sort of just catching up to what we now know about human behavior. But then there's other things. And I want to just take stock of We've, we've already covered very quickly several different reasons for why the news is making us miserable. One is that the actual news is scary. Some percentage is the pervasiveness, right, which David mentioned, the way that the news has become sort of aerosolized, right? It's everywhere all the time. You never know when you're going to get ambushed by it, right? When you think you can have a moment of peace, boom, like it comes around the corner, right? Another reason which one of the listeners mentioned, and I know we all are aware of, is the sort of financial incentives, right, for CNN and Fox to tweak the audience, to keep them at a heightened level of anxiety and fear all the time in different ways. Before we get to other reasons and, and also possible solutions, I wonder if um, we can talk a little bit about how we have personally and professionally adjusted to this or tried to experiment right, with other ways. Um, Nicole, I know in, in your own coverage, particularly of people who are incarcerated, you've done things a little bit differently, right? Absolutely. So I think one of the biggest benefits of being a reporter at the Marshall Project, right, an organization that just covers, you know, end to end the criminal justice system, is that you have a real benefit of, of time. And I cannot stress just how important it is to be able to take time when mm. reporting stories and reporting on people who are ensnared in a system that is, you know, crushes 
just some of the most fundamental aspects of their daily life, right? So whether or not you are incarcerated or connected to someone who is, it's just so hard to go through that system. So now imagine a reporter comes in and something's happening. And usually when you're reporting on the justice system, it's like the worst possible thing you can imagine is happening, right? And a reporter swoops in and they just are demanding of your time and they don't explain what's happening or what you you know, why they're talking to you or how they're going to use it. And, you know, they just rush in and kind of rush out. I think it leaves people with a really negative taste in their mouths, right? I heard a lot of the time about people having bad experiences with other news outlets specifically for that reason. And we kind of thought about it as really extractive journalism. And you see that extraction in what gets reported. You see people not being three-dimensional. You see journalists sort of just framing like people as just the worst parts of their stories as opposed to a full human being. And so I really took and pretty much everybody at the Marshall Project took a very different approach in reporting. And I think it yields a different type of storytelling to think about people before they got into trouble, you know, after they get out of prison to tell some sort of arc of their story. Often that means that we're able to show that people take real opportunities for redemption, that they are sorry, Um, right? You have just like a richness of emotion and experience. And I think it makes the reporting process easier. It builds trust. Uh, It means that we're able to go back to those sources and they don't feel burned by us. But it also means that the story that we're able to tell to people who are going to consume it is layered. It's rich. It's not just hopeless and not just bleak. There's deep distrust for the news media these days, along with most other institutions, as you know. Some of that distrust comes from the extractive nature of traditional journalism, which definitely got worse as media outlets had to compete for eyeballs and attention alongside Facebook and Fortnite and TikTok, and journalists had less and less time to do good work. But if it's possible to cover prisons differently, Treating sources like human beings and writing stories that feature loss and suffering right alongside hope, agency, and dignity, then shouldn't it also be possible to cover other depressing beats in a different way too? Like, say, climate change, or politics, or even war? More on that after a quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. When we asked you all to call us with your thoughts on the news, we didn't just hear from news consumers. We also heard from a bunch of current and former journalists like Druthi. I was a news junkie for most of my life. I've been working in journalism for over 15 years. But more recently, it's just been exhausting. How are your stories changing things when our world is one full of misinformation and disinformation? If I wanted to work in fiction, I would have gone into fiction. But 
it's just sometimes too much. It's an information overload. It's an ecosystem that's just exhausting. Dorothy hits on a really important and under-discussed piece of this problem. The news is depressing because, in part, a lot of journalists are depressed. And who wouldn't be if you're immersed in the news for your job year after year? And David Bornstein knows what this feels like. But early in his career, he went on a reporting trip that opened his eyes to a new way of doing his job. He was in Bangladesh to report on what was then a relatively unknown program called the Grameen Bank. It was this radical idea to give out microloans, mostly to women, to help them move out of poverty. And that was really a, a life-changing experience for me for, for, for many reasons. Um, first of all, I was able to see, you know, all the things that you're talking about, hope, agency, and dignity, were very much built into that story. Like, hmm. the only images I had of... Bangladeshi villagers were sort of people, you know, waiting for the Marines to throw them bags of rice after mm. a cyclone kind of thing. Mm. It was always sort of desperation, poverty. And when I got there, I was able to see people who were really, you know, had extraordinary agency, had, you know, were, were really moving their lives forward in ways, had a lot of joy, had great senses of humor. They were making fun of me all the time for my questions. <laughs> and then, of course, the Grammy Bank went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, 10 years after I, my book came out, and I was really excited to see that this idea ultimately did end up having a, a system change. That experience eventually led David to a column at the New York Times started by his colleague Tina Rosenberg. It was called Fixes. Every week they look for all kinds of problems and then go report out potential solutions that seem to be working better than others. And they had real impact. People often wrote back and said, you know, after your story came out, we were contacted by, you know, five local city governments from other towns who want to explore our model for, for improving the Head Start program so that it does better by children who have had uh, trauma in their childhood, something like that. Mm. So just seeing that there's a way of cross-pollinating ideas through journalism, you don't have to advocate and mm -hmm. sort of get into puffery or feel-good stories. You can actually interrogate solutions and actually, the biggest thing that we saw was that it was an accountability mechanism. And this is something that we didn't realize, that when you actually show that better performance is possible and you're able to point to what we would call the positive deviance, it increases pressure on people who are, you know, not doing as smart things or who are being lazy or who are hiding behind excuses um, to mm. up their game because you actually you, you set a higher bar of expectations for what we should do in our school system or how we should be dealing with opioids or, or whatever the issue is. Which is totally counter, I should say, right, to a lot of journalists' intuition, including my own once upon a time, where we think that we have to shine a bright light on the worst failures in order to make the world a better place. And while that's sometimes true, right, it's also true that it sounds like shining a light on people responding to problems can create pressure in other places. Why isn't my mayor doing what the mayor of Houston is doing on homelessness, right? Yeah, totally. Totally. It, it's a way of increasing accountability without feeding into fatalism and powerlessness and hopelessness, all the stuff that we've been talking about. In other words, there's real power in reporting on solutions with rigor. It essentially sharpens the teeth of the watchdog and can give your audience fuel to search for a potential path forward on any given problem. It snaps us out of the trance of news-induced paralysis. What the news does every day is it gives this 
you know, hall of mirrors look of the world. It really is, it's not that it's not accurate. It's just that it's only a slice of reality. It's, it's like, it's like we're like oncologists. We're only looking at the cancer cells. Mm. We're not looking at all the other cells in the body, including the antibodies. And so what we do is we give people this very compact um, story that looks at the Ukraine and the Supreme Court decisions and the democracy melting down and the climate crisis. And we just keep on adding to all of the, the stories that threaten us. But we leave out all of the adaptive resilience, the fact that there are, you know, many, many, many people, I would say, you know, most people actually working very often in competent ways on things that you don't realize to rebuild these systems, to strengthen them, to improve, to renew institutions. There, there's so many things that have changed in the world that are these slow-growing stories. Yeah. Um, and what we end up focusing on are these really, really threatening crisis points. I'm not going to minimize the problems at all, but yeah. it's certainly only one part of the story. Yeah. And I mean, it makes me like literally sick to my stomach when I think about how when crime went way, way down across most of the United States in the past 10 years, people felt more frightened than before. Mm. Yeah. And they felt mm -hmm. frightened of their neighbors. They wouldn't let their kids go out on the streets. And that, I mean, I don't know how that can be the case unless it's to do with the way we've done crime coverage, right? I mean, obviously, politicians feed into that for sure. We have a long history of politicians feeding into fear of the other and fear of black people in particular and fear of crime as a wedge issue to get attention and scare people into voting for them. And it, it has to be the way crime has been covered. When I moved to New York in, um, in 89, and I think in 1990, there were more than 2,000 murders a year in the city back in, uh, in those days. It's in the three or four hundreds now. You right. know, and, and people and yet, don't realize. The coverage makes you feel like mm -hmm. it's another apocalypse, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, crime is one of those areas for me, both as a person, as a black woman, as an editor, uh, you know, where I'm just like, we've got to find a different way to talk about what's going on here, right? We Because the reality is so distorted at this point. And so whether that's Fox News trying to, to, to paint New York as a hellscape, right, that's one sort of form of very intentional propaganda. Mm. But then in general, just the amount at which we are talking about shootings and crime mm -hmm. and, you know, the, a fundamental question here is just like, does every shooting actually have news value? Like, I, I I would say no. I would say no. We don't actually need to know that much about what's happening where. But I think what was so clear to me, and there was a great Bloomberg article about this that showed, you know, one red, bright red line that showed the actual number of shootings within New York City hovering somewhere between, kind of on the lower end, but between zero and 250, and then behind it, this bar chart showing, well, just how much the media had mentioned shootings over mm, that same period. What right? a and great that, way to help right? us understand this. Yeah. Right. And that bar is through the roof. It's hovering somewhere between 750 and 1,000. Right. Mm. And so it just viscerally really shows you just how much the media is distorting an, an issue here right? wow. that we're 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 not actually covering reality at that point, right? We're we're making a pseudo-reality in some yeah. senses. No, and yeah. I mean, you can draw a straight line, I think, between a lot of the problems we have now, including extreme polarization, 
high conflict politics, electing, you know, known con artists uh, yep. and liars to this fear. Absolutely. You know, when when I talk to people who live outside of big cities, they are really frightened to come to New mm -hmm. York City or Washington, even when I can literally point to the homicide stats for their area being mm -hmm. dramatically higher. So, so okay, so I used to cover education. And the, all the big trend in education at the time was evaluate teachers based on how much their students are learning over a given year, right? Where they came in and where they're ending up in May or June. And um, I often wonder, what if we did that for reporters? Like, if our audience is actually learning about the world, then you've succeeded. <laughs> um, and I think there's no other way to say it that we would fail when it comes to criminal justice. And there's variants, Absolutely. right? Like some places are doing this much worse, like the New York Post, like Fox News. Uh, most TV news has done that has really been much more culpable in this. But what do you think we can do? Because this is, I mean, I don't know how we fix anything in this country until we Im improve our trust in one another, not just in the mm -hmm. government or in the news media, but in each other. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it feels like such a complex issue because I think it really gets at this question of, is news a utility? Is it mm. a product? Should it be free? Do we have to pay for it? Who's going to pay for it? Should it be grant funded? Right. And I think that there are just some deep questions that drive coverage in addition to all of the sort of fear mongering and racism and these sort of more embedded right. biases. But I think people have found, you know, outlets have found that outrage and fear kind of drives clicks. And those are those are business decisions in to some degree, right? There are so many sort of structural questions for me about the industry itself that start to get at an answer, yeah. <laughs> right? To what can we do here? Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I, I really think if I could wave a magic wand, this is where I'd start is, is mm -hmm. the crime coverage. I agree. David, what do you think? Do you, is there, I mean, you've worked with so many reporters. Is there any hope for shifting people's, the, the norms of newsrooms around this? Yeah, absolutely. You have to really look, you know, sort of disaggregate the news. I mean, local news is very, very different from national news. Um, you know, there's a lot more hope, I think, for making these shifts at the local level mm -hmm. because, you know, increasingly the news product has to stand on its own two economic legs now. The financial models that are emerging are often getting local funding for it, memberships, sponsorships, um, you know, uh, uh, subscriptions, or even local community foundation support for local news organizations. These things are all on the rise. And they all basically are only really doable if you can prove to the community that the news is really adding value to their lives, which if people are avoiding it, it's a sign that it's not, you know, it's kind of like, how come you never come to our restaurant anymore? Well, the, the food doesn't taste very good, you know, so it's it like, makes me feel sick. Yeah, right. Exactly. It makes me feel yeah. sick. Here's some really, truly good news. Finally, David and his colleagues at the Solutions Journalism Network have now trained over 25,000 journalists worldwide to cover the news in ways that won't make us sick. They report out serious stories about people trying to fix problems, not just marinating in problems. You might be thinking, where are they? I haven't seen these stories. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes to the Solution Story Tracker where you can look up any subject that interests you and see what I mean. You know, I remember a, a number of years ago, we, we, we were approached by Syria Deeply, which at that time was covering the Syrian civil war. And I was like, 
what solutions are there in the Syrian civil war? I was like, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 we could apply this model in all sorts of places, but I couldn't see the relevance. And we were talking with Lara Satraki, and she said, no, you don't understand. Even in this context, people have to keep the water running. They have to keep the economy going. They have to keep educating girls. They have to keep, you know, and she said, there's lots of amazing solutions that are emerging on the ground that are, you know, in many cases, very, very courageous as well and very creative. And that's, you know, people still have to live. So when you think about a Supreme Court decision that is, that changes, you know, the whole country at the level of like the abortion decision, you're going to have adaptations to that in thousands of places, harm reduction, creating new access, political strategies. I mean, all of the ways that the society responds. And that's a really rich story. Yeah, that, even when it doesn't work. At, I think that's an interesting story, right? Like adaptations that fail. So so did you end up doing the training, David, in Syria? We did do the, we did do the training, and they would regularly find really interesting stories. Um, hmm. And and it was fascinating to see that they, when the, once they start, you know, you find what you're looking for. Once you start right. looking for that sort of signal, you find it. That's the bottom line. You find what you're looking for. For decades, journalists have been looking for blame, accountability, fear, anger, and those are really important stories. But it's time to widen the lens, to look for more, in particular for the three things that we know are missing from most news diets today. We've touched on two of them already. First, a sense of agency, evidence that someone somewhere can make a difference out there. And second, hope. Not false hope, but hope based on real reporting. Next week, we're going to talk about the third missing ingredient, dignity, what it is and why it matters, and how you, yes, you, can protect your own dignity and sanity right now and still be reasonably informed. We're going to share all of our own tips, ways that we have adapted to the current news climate, and a few that we have gathered from you. So please join us again next week. Do you need some hope and agency right about now? Send us a note about a problem you'd like to fix at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. And we'd love to have you on the show. By the way, after last week's episode on how to survive a silent retreat, one of my favorites, by the way, if you haven't heard it, we got a fun note from a listener named Dawn. She said, Two days ago, I learned of the 12-hour walk challenge, which is basically a mini solo silent retreat. I wanted to do it, but found myself hesitating. After listening to this episode, I am now 98% committed to doing the walk. I love that honesty. 98%. Anyway, Dawn said, thank you so much for these silent retreat tips. They've given me more confidence and motivation to try the walk challenge. Thank you, Dawn. We hope you get the other 2% of the way there. Let us know how it goes. If you like what you heard today, please give us a rating and a review and tell a friend. That helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson produces the show with help from Kevin Bendis. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, senior technical director. Charles Duhigg created the show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening.